Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia, uh, the host of the End of the Word podcast here with a new initiative. This is the Canadian Pastors Forum podcast. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, the goal here is to discuss issues of interest to the Canadian church. This is our first attempt at this, our first episode. Uh, hopefully, God willing, we'll try to do this once a month. Uh, today, we're talking about how COVID changed the world and changed the church. We're going to be reflecting on what we've learned, what we've lost, and how we've grown. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the world on the other side. Lots of people are talking about that. Mark Sayers uh, wrote a, an interesting book recently. Uh, he's coined the term the gray zone to talk about our transitional times. Uh, George Friedman, who, of course, is not a, not a Christian. He's a um, geopolitical strategist and economic analyst. And he talks about uh, how we are living in the storm before the calm. Uh, a time of upheaval and transition that he thinks leads to another iteration of the culture. Uh, wherever people are coming from, everybody seems to agree that we are in a transitional time. The world is changing, and of course, the church is changing as well. So the questions that we're looking at today are around that topic. What changes? What doesn't? Uh, what can? What can't? What should? What shouldn't? And of course, what will life and ministry look like on the other side? Joining me in this conversation is a wonderful panel that stretches literally from coast to coast. I'll be joined today by Rob Goddard, uh, Chris Sinisale. I didn't say that right. Sinisale. That's a hard one to say. Help me out. I'm gonna give it. Uh, give me the right way to say that. Sign us all. Sign, sign us, us all up for that. All. Yeah. I thought so maybe if I just said it real quick, no one would notice I didn't say it right. But anyway, uh, Testament names. <laughs> Dwayne Klein, Paul Graham, Josh Brake, and Stephen Bray. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Great to have you here. All right, why don't we start today just by a little bit of introduction in terms of that topic on a personal basis. I'd love to hear from each of you in terms of how you personally emerged from COVID, how you emerged as a family, how you emerged as a church. Um, and maybe we'll just go uh, west to east. We'll try to keep this brief, two to three minutes each. But because Canada is so wide and so regionally diverse, I think it's worth hearing from each of you, as you represent different regions, just love to hear your story a little bit. So, Rob, why don't we start with you? Love to answer that, and and thank you for having me on here, and it's a privilege to be here with you all. I, for us, I, I do think Canada is different, and different regions and different churches responded in different ways. Uh, for me personally, as a pastor, it was exhausting and discouraging and disorienting and uh, something that you kind of held on and survived. I think coming out the other side, I'm, I'm feeling very encouraged and uh, resetting, I suppose, in many ways. Our church is a different church. We've lost a number of people. We've gained a number of people. Some of the things we thought were normal are no longer normal. And, and as elders, we're even talking again about what does this mean for us as a congregation? But it was discouraging. I, I think for me, the most discouraging is uh, Christians didn't act Christian in the midst of it. So disagreements that were done in such a way that we acted a lot more like the world than what the word would call us to act like. And people that I saw as extremely immature acted incredibly immature. And it was just difficult to um, close friends who, because I didn't have the right shibboleth, took, um, saw me as demonic even, I suppose, that strong. So very discouraging. And then not being able to see your people consistently and to have such extreme different positions was very, very difficult. 
for us as a family, it was an amazing time. And I, and that might sound really silly because for me being discouraged, but for the family and especially for a pastor who's busy, it, it really gave me an extensive time with my family. And so my wife and I would, would get incredible time together comparatively to before. A lot of the work we were doing was at home and, and those sorts of things. So almost a refreshing time as a family mm-hmm. and difficult to re-engage. And, and now the re-engaging ramping up. Uh, reminding us of all the things that went on before, um, difficult. So I think I think now, although I wouldn't have said this uh, probably three, four months ago, it's exciting. We're deciding what, what do we need to do differently so that if or when, I suppose, these things happen again in terms of the attacks and, and confusions and disorientations, how do we disciple our people, uh, God's people, so that they follow Jesus, act like Jesus in the messes we go through and learn to hold on to the essentials, uh, hold loosely to those things that aren't essential and live in love and holiness. So it's just that that re-engagement with excitement of what it means to make disciples and to follow Jesus and to, to reach the world missionally. I'll also say, I think for uh, maybe the most intense time in my ministry life in BC, there's a new hmm, awareness of spiritual things. So when I'm inviting people to church and and engaging with people in our community, they're responding graciously and they're actually coming. So we're, we're seeing a new excitement around mission, which perhaps our church didn't have for the last two or three years before COVID, uh, the opportunity to impact people with the gospel. It's exciting. And, and we're seeing people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior probably on a weekly basis. And it, so it's exciting. So it's it's nerve wracking a bit. We're resetting, but exciting to seek to reorient around what is God's true mission. That's good. And then Chris, I, I guess you'd be next on the West to East March. <laughs> no, I guess you yeah. would have been. I don't know. I would have been first, but yeah, I was. Sorry. I didn't I take it personal. It's all good. It's all good. Um, yeah, as far as our family goes, uh, similar to, to what Rob said, you know, there was some some sweet time where things just kind of push pause on everything. Uh, there was some real health that came from that. Um, my oldest son uh, was a senior in high school, um, kind of heading into that, and it was actually a really hard time for him. He uh, lost a lot of things that were uh, pretty significant and important to him and, uh, you know, uh, battled and still battles uh, just a lot of uh, deep grief and loss. And uh, I feel like it was a pretty significant setback for him personally yeah. that he's still recovering from. Uh, so that that's, was hard and has been hard to uh, just, you know, walk that out with him. It's And he's got a brother now who's going through all of those uh, senior, uh, you know, senior high school moments and, observing them what they look like when they're fully realized and that's yeah. it's almost like reliving it uh in, in a very real sense so that's been hard uh to grieve and celebrate all those things happening at the same time um but on the whole our family healthy uh for me as a, a pastor church leader um honestly i had a different experience than rob and it probably has something to do with just the way i'm wired i i enjoyed it uh i um i mean i plant uh, my wife and I were part of planting the church that we're part of. And um, I enjoyed the every week was a new adventure. What do we get to try and figure out this week? Um, and so that part of it was exciting. There were definitely hard things, the division, the conflict, the, you know, some of that stuff, but, but I actually thrived in the chaos. I enjoy that. Um, and then as a church, uh, you know, probably similar to a lot of, a lot of people just, uh, it feels like it's a whole new church. Our core stayed together intact, uh, with, uh, with the mission and, and the gospel of Jesus at the center, which is really encouraging. But then we have a whole new group of people that we're trying to shepherd and disciple and 
reorient around uh, Jesus's lordship in their lives and what that looks like as it pertains to how they live in our city. Uh, so that's that can be a little exhausting to feel like you're not starting over again, but <clears throat> some of the headway that you had made is now gone, and you are you know um, you're kind of starting again in a, in a very yeah. real sense. On the whole, though, I would say um, I'm encouraged. I think that, uh, yeah, I just think Jesus is up to something, and I'm excited to see what it is. Good. Right on. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure who would be next on the West to East March. It's probably me, I guess, then, isn't it? Uh, it would, Yeah, or, or would it be you, Paul Graham? No, still you. Okay, still me. All right, good. Your geography is better than mine. All right, so uh, for us, I would say similarly, I'll start with the sort of personal. Um, I would say on the family side of things, I had a son as well who was kind of at a transitional stage in life. He was playing, um, you know, for a high level of soccer, and they they shut that down. Um, not for the whole time, but uh, they, they basically drastically diminished schedule, missed out on some key... Uh, transitions and and life change moments and all that kind of great stuff so we kind of mourned uh that as well uh for him and then you know for our i i have a daughter who graduated high school at the end of the pandemic just as it was over who really had only been to high school for two years and and you just think oh my goodness i hope she's well prepared and and uh so yeah, I can definitely identify with that. But then there were positives too. For our family, I think at one point, I don't remember the number, but at one point we hit 16 days in a row for family dinner and family devotions together, which is like a record for us because with busy kids, I mean, usually if you get three or four of those in a week, you feel pretty good. Um, so to get whatever it was, 16, 17, 18 in a row, we felt like that we'd hit the jackpot on, on that line. Uh, as a church, you know, we weathered real well. I, I think... My rough estimate is, would seem to be that the longer you have been at your current church, the the less traumatic this this was as a leadership test. And I, I'd been here um, 15 years when COVID struck, right? So I had a lot of sort of leadership in the bank, so to speak. And we weathered really well. We we came to consensus really quick um, and never wavered. We, we sort of established what our threshold would be for civil, civil disobedience. Didn't feel that it was reached. So we were using every square inch of permission, you know, lots of multiple services. And that was exhausting. You felt like you're doing three times the work for half the return, but, uh, but you know, it was short term in our minds. We're like, well, we can get through it. It's not forever. Like, uh, like you, Rob, I was shocked. The one thing I didn't predict, uh, was, how quickly the evangelical world would fall apart and fall to war. Um, like there were guys I was supposed to meet, like to hang out with who all of the sudden were like attacking me online. And I'm like, what just happened? Like we were planning dinner, like your wife and my wife, we were going to get together. Now I'm, you know, the enemy. And by the end of it, the antichrist or whatever it was. And you're just like, how did that happen over, over an issue that is not the Trinity or the atonement. So I was sort of shocked by that. And, but at the same time, you know, it, it was confusing, right. And, and uh, tensions were high and people were stressed. So you, you, you sort of just write it all off and say, all right, well, that, that was, that was wild. Didn't see that coming. Um, but definitely didn't enjoy that part of it either. As for the church, I think we emerged stronger and bigger. I expected, I remember telling our guys in the middle of the pandemic, I said, I think we'll emerge. And I was stealing a phrase from somebody else from Rick Buck said, I think we'll emerge stronger at the core and smaller at the edges. And then by God's grace, I think we emerged 
stronger everywhere and and actually larger um and so but part of that too is our our town changed because with this um remote work that started happening in toronto our town which is about an hour north of toronto all of a sudden became a commuter town um and so we had a ton of people move here over the course of the pandemic as well so uh the town changed the church changed it's definitely an interesting time paul you'd be next right paul graham yeah i think so yep um yeah, similar experience, probably just on a slightly smaller scale. Um, personally, my son was in his first year of college, and so we had empty nested, and then he re-nested. So he came back for the COVID uh, time, and that was that was fun. That was good. You know, there was on a personal level, it was really good. I, you know, I echo most of you. The added family time, time with at home, was actually quite good. In terms of the church, we you know we didn't emerge unscarred there were families that broke away over some of the issues that we've talked about but largely we continued all of our ministry just doing ministry differently so we kind of buckled down and said we're going to keep doing every ministry it's just going to look different than it did we're not going to stop doing anything um and so it might look different but we kept doing it kept serving the people we were serving and i you know was yeah, great to boast on my church in terms of people stepping up to be able to do that. So that was good. And uh, would say that the core definitely got stronger um, and, the, and the margins got slimmer. You know, the marginal kind of drifted away, and, but the core got stronger. And um, yeah, we went, we went through it and came, and came through fine by God's grace. And we just kept reminding ourselves that God doesn't waste anything. So he's using everything for his purposes and nothing is wasted. And so we didn't want to feel like it was lost years or lost time, even though it felt like you were doing three times as much for half the return. We knew that wasn't true uh, in God's economy. So, yeah, and in some ways it was sweet. In some ways it was sad. But on the whole, um, yeah, I know you're going to be talking about providence coming up, and it was providential for sure. That's what we kept looking at is what's God's providence in this. Dwayne, how about you, brother? Yeah, I'd say uh, I'll start with our family. For our family, it was both uh, joy and difficult. The joy of what you experienced, Paul, of us being home, a lot of Zoom meetings to start. So even if I was out, I was home, but but in a Zoom meeting, so a lot less travel time, no banter after the meeting. Um, long periods of time where we're all together for family devotions. And because I have four, I mean, my oldest son's in his early 20s. The others are all, my other three kids are teens. So, you know, work, job, you know, balancing all that, that was all different. So there were some great moments in that. Uh, but my wife also owns a storefront. Um, and so that was challenging because it closed back and forth and up and down. And so helping her navigate that. And our oldest daughter was in her last two years of high school. And uh, that was really hard on her. Like all the rites of passage were gone. And it was just really tough. And so we faced some mental health stuff with that. Um, in terms of the church, I, I think my strongest gift isn't shepherding, but leadership. And so kind of like Chris, I was like, oh, here's a challenge. Let's go. Now, <laughs> it did get wearisome. Like there were times when I was like, this is an exhausting challenge. Yeah. But like um, because of other other leadership capacities I'm a part of, I can call into Ontario Health or Public Health Ontario right kind of to the top and have some conversations. And I did do that. And so I saw that as, as um, like, you know, God, let's see how you're going to help us navigate our church through this. So like, you know, we only lost two couples through all of COVID, one that thought we were too strict and one that thought we weren't strict enough. Um, and um, and we grew through COVID. 
what I had to be mindful of is most of my congregation didn't see this as a as an exciting challenge to develop new leadership skills in. Um, and, and most so of your I friends didn't either. Newsflash. No, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> it was just you. And, and so, no, Chris sounds like he was just like me. And so I had to really be praying about, you know, how to shepherd people well. And and when I look at our church, why why did we fare so well through it? I don't know if it's because of the posture we developed early on um, that just said, like, we're we're going to treat this as bylaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we're going to follow what we need to follow, but we'll communicate well, we'll shepherd well. So that was phone calls, porch visits, and we'll gather as often as much as we can gather. And ministry will pivot, but it will not stop. We'll just have to alter what we're doing for seasons. And the Lord seemed to honor that. That's good. Good, Josh. Yeah, thanks. Well, uh, Paul, unlike you, I didn't have 15 years. I had two weeks. Uh, Dwayne, unlike you, I'm not so much leadership inclined as I am uh, maybe uh, more of that pastoral care inclined. And so uh, I I would say that uh, COVID was quite wearying for me. I felt very weary. I still feel weary. Uh, I'll be honest, I still feel weary, uh, but I am I am feeling hopeful. Um, our situation as a family is a bit unique in that we moved between the first and second waves from Ontario to Quebec. Uh, in fact, I started and two weeks after I was there, the province began to just shut down. And I, I don't mean like shut down, I mean like clamp, like, you know, when you suck all the air, you push all the air out of something and you put a belt around it. Like that's, that's what it felt like for us. Um, I had come to a church uh, that had been without a pastor for an extended period of time as well. And the parting with the previous pastor had been, uh, had been, had brought some turmoil to the church. Uh, so I was not entering at a time when uh, there was a lot of strength or stability. So what would have really been a hard move at, at the best of times, new culture, new language, new people. Remember, I'm, I'm more people oriented. I was was certainly uh, exaggerated. The difficulty of it was exaggerated as it was it was actually illegal for us to have anyone in our home for the first eight months that we were here. Yeah, we wow. went through uh, two police patrolled curfews, uh, and the cherry on top was the eventual imposition of a vaccine passport on houses of worship. So you put all those things together, and yeah. um, there was there was very little stability for us in coming in. That said, what I would say just for for our church, what COVID did. Uh, is it put everything on pause? So while while I've heard of some guys kind of say, hey, we're able to just kind of keep doing everything. What it did for us is it put everything on pause, pretty much everything on pause, and really limited our focus on the Sunday gatherings, and which primarily focused on the preaching of the word, because there was many weeks when we weren't even legally allowed to sing. So uh, that really changed the dynamic a lot for us. Uh, this period lasted, it was about 20 months for us. And I would say it took a toll on me personally, um, physically, emotionally, I, I've never felt so uh, so bankrupt in my life. Uh, thankfully, uh, spiritually, my, my faith wasn't shaken, but physically and emotionally, I was pretty much done. Mm. Um, I just say thanks be to God, really, uh, despite the storm. Uh, coming out of COVID, the ministry here is as strong as I could have ever imagined it might have possibly been. And we really have a growing unity around the word. But one thing that I would, I would say I've really noticed coming out of this uh, as I, as I understand people, remember, I didn't know the people before COVID. So I'm just kind of trying to get a sense of, of what this might've been, but my sense is that people's bandwidth has shrunk considerably. Mm-hmm. So people's willingness to lead or even participate in ministries that, uh, you know, require that long range commitment 
it has just, it has just shrunk, shrunk down. And so uh, personally, I feel weary. I mentioned that before. I feel weary. I don't feel like I was ever able really to rest coming out of a hard season. Uh, it was just like hard season, hard season. Oh, wait, it's not a hard season. So go not realizing that, you know, you kind of been running through mud for the previous two years. So um, I would say that I'm still feeling weary. But again, uh, what this has done is it's placed such a great emphasis on our, our actual gathering, our time of worship. Uh, and it's been something that I think we are, we're starting to know the joy of celebrating together, coming out of an extended season of isolation. So we as a church right now, we're doing, I think, better than we were two years ago. Uh, but there's a weariness that lingers. Yeah, that's good. Dwayne, <clears throat> oh, sorry, let's uh, let's go to Steve. Sorry, way out there on the island. We, we almost missed you. Well, and you know what? That's pretty well sums up how we handle it. Um, <laughs> Come on. Yeah, so it's 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 really weird for us. I think being on an island and also, quite frankly, uh, in regards to the church life, because Christianity is such in the minority of our city, um, evangelical Christianity, we, we just we had no one to fight with. Uh, so it was all about survival. Um, our church really did well. Our motto ended up being, you know, we're not uh, unanimous, but we are united. So I, I know it sounds so hard. I, I don't recall. I don't think I had one COVID fight, one COVID misstep, you, you know, a couple of phone calls or emails just to click clarifications or to say I'm not comfortable with this, but very quickly handled. Um because of the nature of this, we are church, but then we had started a church planning network. So right from day one, we decided to bubble as a staff. So I never missed a day of work. Like I never was locked away at home. I could always go to work. I left my house and went to work pretty well every day of COVID. So I never lost that sense of normality, uh, which I think for me and my personality, being extroverted, extrovert was, was a, a real gift from God for me. Um, our church first shrank and then we grew consistently. So we shrank because of oil and gas province. Uh, we had four or five American families when COVID hit, they were all shipped back to the United States and they were all wonderful families. So we felt the loss of that and kind of the scare of that. But then I think because we were able to stay together as a staff and so we could maintain that sense of creativity and because we could stay together, you had a good shared amount of uh, prophet, priest, king kind of giftings. There, there was a sense of adventure. Um, you know, again, I've always said we became instant televangelists. I embraced the kind of the technology. And did you and, get a white suit? <laughs> well, not quite that much. Um, but, you know, did daily devos. We did online prayer meetings. We did Q&As. We did all kinds of stuff. And just our people bought into it. Um on the flip side, you know, unlike many of you guys, from a family perspective, just being very transparent and vulnerable, what was unique to Newfoundland was January of 2020 started with snowmageddon, yeah, like 115 right. centimeters of snow. We basically had a snow hurricane. It was a category three hurricane with snow and not rain. It shut us down completely in January for five days, state of emergency, so there was the shock of that. And then for my wife and I, our marriage and everything, but we went through back-to-back -back family tragedies in the midst of COVID, which really seatbelted us into how to handle it. Uh, it was going to require a lot of uh, counseling and, 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 and emotional management, and we were hamstrung to do a lot of that because of COVID. Right. So on a family level, it was very, very difficult uh, for us. And that's probably what stressed me out, sucked the energy out of me more than 
than anything. Um, but, you know, as Mark Twain said in The Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So while we didn't have COVID fights here, to our horror, I think I felt the weight of the COVID fights everywhere else. Yeah. And you just wondered, who can I call? Who is it safe to express yourself to? People that I've looked up to and admired and sought counsel from all of a sudden did things that I'm like, what happened to you? And quite frankly, people that were even theologically far away from me, but seemed to handle this a whole lot better now became my friends. Um, tribalism, camps, labels, all of a sudden. So being on an island, very much in a church in a hard place, very outnumbered, I just felt more lonely. Hmm. I really wondered about who are my friends, who are my confidants, who am I going to get to see? So there was that sense of it uh, for us. But, um, you know, coming out of COVID, uh, as we've come out, we we are a bigger church numerically, membership. God worked miracles for us that are just a wonderful set of tales for a different podcast. But uh, yeah, that's a little bit of our story here on the East Coast. That's good. <clears throat> and that sets us up well for kind of what I want to talk about next, which is just one of the, the obvious learning uh, points of of learning that we've had over the last couple of years has been maybe we weren't prepared to properly scale and categorize our disagreements. You know, you mentioned Stephen, like there were there were guys you were looking up to, considering mentors, and then all of a sudden you're like, what is going on? And we all had that kind of experience. I I I think we would all agree COVID was confusing. And so certainly you can understand why there would be disagreements, but why did some, or why did it end up being treated like a first level disagreement? I, I feel like we fought as though this was the atonement. We fought as though this was the Trinity. Why did that happen? And, you know, if we want to learn from this, something else like this is going to come up again. I, I find it hard to believe that this is the last confusing issue we'll deal with before the Lord returns. Like, so this is going to come up again. How do we do better um, is is sort of my my thought process. Dwayne, you wrote a really good article a couple of weeks ago. I'm assuming it was kind of the the overflow of your COVID reflections. Maybe not. Maybe it was just a, you know, a unique moment of genius and inspiration. I don't know. Uh, you can tell us. But I thought it was really useful. And uh, it, it built on some work that had been done before by others. I assume like Al Mohler. I think you made reference to him in the article. So just walk us through what you've learned and maybe what you would tell us uh, for the next time something confusing happens. Yeah, Paul. So I would say that it wasn't just based out of COVID. For me, I've had some friends, colleagues who shifted in areas of their views on sexuality, on forms of universalism. They wouldn't be a full universalist, but but they've shifted. Um, and in doing so, they're they're appealing to you know Gavin Ortland or or um, Al Mohler's theories and saying, you know, this is second rank or third order, and and so you know in some cases that they're they're using categories that I wouldn't agree with. And so I really agonized over part of the COVID stuff, part of this other stuff. Lord, what are the categories that scripture talks about when it's it is categorizing itself? And it seems to be sound doctrine, disputable matters, unsound doctrine, and then heresy or blasphemy. And so, so slow down case, and give us those. And those are for the listeners, those are in descending order. So you gave us top rank and you ended or yeah. or however you want to think about it yeah. from from least egregious to most egregious. So give give those categories again. Yeah. So sound doctrine, that by which all doctrine is measured. Mm -hmm. Disputable matters. And I would say those are 
areas where you've either seen some movement in scripture or where uh, an equal qualifying hermeneutic can get you to a different position, but you agree that the hermeneutic is sound. Mm-hmm. And so those could be issues of disagreement over divorce and remarriage, and a whole number of topics. Some are mentioned in the scripture, and where unity is paramount beyond a disputable matter. Um, unsound doctrine, and the in scripture, the posture of unsound doctrine is always, the words are used, refute, rebuke, and correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and then heresy or blasphemy, where the language is stronger, like hand them over to Satan in, in Timothy. Okay. Um, so so I, I began to agonize over some of that. And I would say that though we as James North treated the um, protocols as bylaws to be followed, um, we treated a lot of the dif- dis- disagreement that we had um, as disputable matter mm-hmm. and said unity needs to needs to be paramount over this and we'll work through this together. What What caught me off guard, I think, as you guys have all said this, is Colleagues of ours, where we would normally all be very similar in our views on sound doctrine and even close in disputable matters, all of a sudden on the area of government and civil disobedience, it shifted drastically. And so all of a sudden people were calling me and others around us. I didn't get called the Antichrist, but all of a sudden we were heretics Mm -hmm. um, because of how they treated this and how people saw this. And so I, I... in, in church history, the only way as I've kind of looked through this that that historically the church has dealt with this is by calling councils together mm-hmm. um, to have conversation around where does this issue fall and how do we deal with it? And how we would have done that through um, COVID, I'm not sure, but I think there needs to be a day where we are able to call councils together again and wisely seek God's face and study his word and say, where do this? Where does this issue fall, and how do we understand it? And then, how, how do we posture ourselves and navigate that issue with each other? Yeah, it, interestingly, um, I think in a sense, while while we're going to get into the Providence talk in just a minute, but I think in a sense, COVID revealed the weaknesses in the evangelical movement, uh, and one of our weaknesses is, you know, how do we handle disputable matters? How do we keep a fairly low level? you know, dispute, which which it it should have been, right? Like how best to respond to government protocols in a time of pandemic. Like, I think that should have been a mildly heated conversation as opposed to sort of an apocalyptic showdown. Um, But that's, that's Protestant or that's Protestantism in a nutshell, but also evangelicalism in a nutshell. I've got a good friend who uh, grew up evangelical who uh, converted as a family to Catholicism. And when I talked to him about it, this was the thing. He's like, evangelicals are all over the map. Like they, you, there's as many opinions on every issue as there are evangelical denominations uh, and more so because each of those denominations has a hundred opinions within them. There needs to be somebody to impose order. Now, I don't disagree with that. Or I, I mean, I don't agree with with his assessment, right? I, I continue to be a Baptist, uh, but I, I can't disagree with his observation uh, the more pressure you put on evangelicalism, the the more the wider the spectrum of opinion on everything seems to get. So you talked about a council. What what is the evangelical option here? Like how do how can we wrangle these cats uh, when when next we face a pressurized, confusing situation? I'd I'd love others to jump in on this as well. But I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One of the things. I found quite helpful is when you look at the book of Philippians and you're studying it, 
And you think of the Apostle Paul and the way he handles a group of men who are preaching out of envy and rivalry in chapter one and says, what does it matter? The gospel is being preached, right? Christ is being proclaimed. And then you flip to chapter three and he talks about those men, those 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 uh, those dogs, those men who do evil, the mutilators of the flesh. And he's got two very different categories. And it's all about about what the gospel is. And mm-hmm. so and so I think and how the gospel is being impacted by by what is being said and how it's being said. And so I think we need to take a deeper dive. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems we had, Paul, personally, is is you try to find a good book on disputable matters. There's great commentaries that talk about it on Corinthians and Romans. But you just try to find a good book on disputable matters, you're hard-pressed. And so we don't have a strong theology on it. Yeah, now two books, I think, came out during the pandemic that tried to fill that gap. Right. Uh, Andy Nassali uh, had the book on conscience, which I thought was excellent. Yeah. And then you've mentioned uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Did you mention that already? I mentioned Gavin Orland, but yeah, that's the book. Yeah, yeah, that's the book. Any any Anybody else want to throw in a resource that could help us next time around? Well, I even think um, Truman's book, which is a little bit of a heavier read, um, not necessarily COVID-specific, but broad culturally. You know, Which book are you talking about? Um, not the new one. Yeah, no, no, his second newest that came out. It came out during covid um, on theology and culture, the rise um, and triumph of the modern self. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a heavier read, but I do think mm-hmm. it takes all these things. in. I would say guys, you know, it's interesting, uh, Dwayne, you talked about COVID and then sexuality. I actually think what COVID pulled the scales back, especially in Canada on North America was our overall division and confusion about ecclesiology and eschatology, quite yeah. frankly, which I think was humbling. Cause I think we thought we had that stuff nailed down. But but the source of a lot of this argumentation came out of how we, at the end of the day, we're going to apply ecclesiology and eschatology because words like theonomy all of a sudden was as popular as the word pivot. Yeah, uh, I thought especially- I thought theonomy was a conversation we had in the late 1990s. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, we're having this again. Right, exactly. And then so then there was the great, the great debate of Romans 13 and 14, but it, what yeah. went missing was how often did we hear anything about Galatians 5 and what it means to be Christians with the fruit of the Spirit and how we interact with each other. I'll also say this. I actually think social media and media gave amplifiers to this that affected the evangelical world. And what I would say is we had a small number of very well-known personalities in the evangelical world that took diametrically opposite views of how to handle this. And then that cataclysmically, seismically splintered the larger part of, of the evangelical church in the United States and Canada. Mm. That, that's my view of how this all rattled around. Yeah, Paul Graham. Uh, just one observation I would make too. Um, I would be, you're sort of presuming that you're having a conversation with somebody who's arguing from biblical principles or arguing in good faith from trying to work out their Christianity or their faith or their ecclesiology. But what I found and what I don't want to do is argue with people who are following the religion of freedom. Yeah. And I think what COVID exposed is that a lot of Christians' religion was actually freedom. And so they weren't arguing from biblical points of view. It was just, my freedom is being taken away. My idol is threatened, and I'm going to fight for it. 
And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm not now debating with you as another Christian who's trying to, in good faith, you know, figure out the text and how we work as a, as a church. You're just someone who's not even operating on Christian principles anymore because you're just angry about your freedom being taken away. And, and you're, and you're, so that, so I had to, you almost have to separate who am I arguing against? Am I just arguing against somebody who is upset about their freedom being taken away? Because there's no biblical principle really for, well, there is, but I mean, that's a whole different conversation. To slap or, a verse on that, am I Paul. talking to a sincere Christian who's trying to work through, you know, an issue of Christian conscience? But I think they, I think they disguised, I think they used an issue of Christian conscience to just disguise their anger at their freedom being taken away. Yeah, as John says, they went out from us because they were not of us, right? And then he, he says yeah, that, it was actually yeah, necessary that, for them to the type of thing. Yeah. go out from us so that we would know who's really of us. And and so there's a sense in which maybe COVID did us a favor. It it showed us where the idols were buried. Rob, you're nodding your head. I mean, looks I like grieve the, I grieve those people, but I didn't feel like I needed to go and argue with them because they were not leaving over Christian principles. They were just leaving over their own principles. Yeah, I, I argued with him anyway. It broke my heart. <laughs> I, I, I do think we have Christian popes in the evangelical world. And at least here, some of those people spoke up and people followed them without thinking through what they were actually saying. Yeah. And some of them in their own specific Los Angeles environment or whatever, whoever you're talking about, maybe they made good decisions, maybe they didn't, but it became de facto their followers, whoever had that person as a pope there then we have to do that they've spoken i i think there's a danger to that and i i 100%. would like us to set out parameters christian this is how we disagree i love uh, what you talked about Dwayne. I, I think more important than the disagreement itself is that we disagree in a way that honors and brings glory to god this is what christianity is well these are the fundamentals and then when we disagree, there's a humility, there's a, a passion for love, self-sacrificial love, there's a willingness to listen to one another, to actually define the terms. And I think so often in this fight, the, the terms were more, this is what my Pope said, therefore, this is what I must do. I agree with the idol factory thing. I think my rights, my freedoms, you're stepping on them. We had people leave our church because I said in a Sunday morning sermon that rights as Christians, really, John 1, 12, beyond that, were self-sacrificial servants. And and they certainly heard stuff I didn't say. I, I think we need to learn to listen to one another as well mm -hmm. and to truly understand and define the disagreements and then decide where they fit. I love the sliding scale. Where do they fit on that? And if they're just disagreements and you're a pastor and, and a part of an elders board of another congregation, let's respect one another. Let's love one another. You're your environment and mine, I guess this shows I'm Baptistic as well, Paul, but but we, we live in different worlds and God has given us responsibilities to be accountable for the, the flock that we are responsible for. And that might mean different decisions than you make, that you make that are actually right when it comes to these sort of issues. So can we respect one another and love one another and have conversations with one another that understands, I guess, ecclesiology, that understands how Jesus has set up the church and when it's not a clear black and white biblical issue, can we agree to disagree in a way that honors God and doesn't put pressure on each other's flocks as to black and white, right and wrong? Yeah, it sounds like if we're going to do this better next time, like assuming again, something else confusing will come before Jesus comes. Um, I, I, I think we need to build some stuff up, like what you're talking about, Rob. We need to build up an etiquette around how this stuff is handled. I think we need to incorporate you know, work like Dwayne's, uh, work like Al Mohler's, where we identify categories so that we know, like, when am I authorized to pull out hard language? Like, that's one of the things I said to people all the time. It's like, 
you're talking to me as if I'm a heretic when in fact, I'm just a guy with a slightly different opinion, a very slightly different opinion about you on a very marginal issue. Um, and, and so where, where those kind of categories, I think if we built up like just an understanding of that kind of stuff, I think that'd be very helpful. And then there's some stuff I think we need to tear down. Like the tribalism and it is a huge factor. Like you mentioned the popes. Um, I, in 2018, I think it was, I wrote an article called, I love John Piper, but he is not the Pope. And, uh, and if I were, if I had to choose a team, like I'd, I'd be on team Piper. Right. But the point is he's not the Pope and, and it's okay to disagree with John Piper and, uh, and it's okay to disagree with John MacArthur. No, but the no, fact that's not, that okay. it's no, not so okay. Piper is okay, but MacArthur is not. <laughs> But the the funny thing is, like, I, I think you put your, your finger on it. it. The fact that these giants like Piper and MacArthur disagreed with each other revealed how tribal we've become. Um, these are just these are just men. And and it's OK to listen to what they say and then say, mm, I don't think so. Uh, and and authority should reside in the local church. You should be more interested in what your elders said than in what John Piper said or John MacArthur but you know, sadly, that's not true. So that that needs to be torn down. And then, just before we leave this conversation, is any, anything you want to throw in so that we can do this a little better next time? I haven't heard from Josh or Chris. You don't have to all pipe in on every topic, but I I just want to make sure we didn't miss anything. Yeah, I'll just I'll just add. It was good stuff. I got lots I could say. I'll just say one more thing though. When and if you define yourself or at any point in time by what you're against, these issues will come up again. Because yeah. you have to continue to define yourself by that, especially if you've been incentivized to do so based on a growing church, a growing platform. You now have narrowed your voice into a particular stream and you are going to be, unfortunately, potentially blind to that. And you're going to continue to say the things that are going to reinforce the incentives that you're receiving. So I have no doubt because you can already see it on the Twitter sphere that we're being set up for the next big thing that. Paul, you will undoubtedly be called a heretic over. Um, so yeah, just okay. aware that it is definitely coming. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I want to uh, turn the corner just a little bit and talk about Providence. Uh, Paul Graham, you mentioned that that's on your heart and on your mind. I think it is for a lot of us. Obviously, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, even though uh, Dwayne enjoyed uh, the leadership challenge of COVID, I'm going to assume none of us would have chosen this uh, and, and none of us... Um, invited this or welcomed this. Nevertheless, because we believe in providence, I'm assuming we're all capable of seeing God's work in this. And so I'd just be curious as, as we, you know, from our various vantage points, uh, what do you see? How did God use this? How is the church stronger, better, wiser uh, on the other side? How did, how did God use COVID-19 and the associated pandemic? Anybody can just jump in. It doesn't, we can go east to west or you can just, whoever. Well, you know what? This month, our church read through the book of Isaiah, and man, I'll tell you, you want to use the word providence? Yeah. <laughs> we just finished up a staff meeting, and we were just talking about how God works. And, you know, since, you know, most of us would consider ourselves kind of reformed people, it is it, one of the things that I have said repeatedly is it's easy to be a Calvinist when it all goes your way. You figure out if you truly trust in providence and sovereignty when it doesn't go your way. And God is still wonderful and magnificent. Mm -hmm. And that's where I do think those major and minor prophets of the Old Testament are just warm blankets to just wrap yourself around 
um, and you realize that we are not unique. That's the other thing. I think there was a real pride factor through COVID that we thought, you know, this was never going to happen to us. And I, I will say, just to add to this, you know, friends in some of the other countries that have faced persecution really looked with like a dog at a high pitched sound at the Western church and went, really guys, this is yeah. what, this is your line in the sand. Um, so I just found reading through the old Testament prophets and being reminded of even when it's not comfortable, even when it is hard, my God is still in control, still has a plan. My sin is still being interceded for. I still have an advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father. And, you know, Paul, I heard you preach once this in Corinthians, this momentary light affliction doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory. And I was probably shocked and now challenged to say, Steve, are you going to live as if this life is as good as it gets? Are you going to live that this life is previews of coming attractions when the glories of eternity will be ours? Yeah, good. Anyone else? Any way that you see the Lord having used COVID to actually bless and, and strengthen the church? Yeah, I think for us uh, where we are, uh, because the lockdowns were so significant and so sort of comprehensive, yeah. um, there was a lot of isolation. Um, I think what that did, uh, I'll, I'll speak specifically for our church, but I'm seeing it in some other churches in our region as well, is that it really moved uh, us away from a, a programmatic approach to church where you can be really busy, but not really care about people, to being forced to make intentional and individual efforts to care for the souls of, of men and women and boys and girls that God has entrusted under our care. And so uh, it was, you know, obviously a, re a really dark season here. Um, I'm in a, I'm in a dark region. I would just say spiritually, we don't have, you know, like, like Stephen Newfoundland, we don't, we don't have big churches in, in Quebec. Um, so when, when people leave, when you have some say American families go back, wow, <laughs> you know, you just lost 10% of your church. And so you, you can feel that, but I think what this has done providentially is it has uh, realigned uh, our focus on a biblical leadership that is under the word of God, that is looking first and foremost to make his word known and to care for souls. So it's not, it, as we're coming out of this, I mean, we got a lot of stuff going on now, which is great. Um, but it, but it isn't about, you know, how much stuff can we do and how many people can we get there? Uh, so we're not worried about being big. We're worried about being healthy. And I think uh, in God's providence, he's used a hard time to reveal where some sicknesses were so that those can get healed by his word. Good. And I think for many of us, uh, we, we grew in our understanding of lament mm -hmm. and what it meant that God allows us to actually lament over some things and it's biblical and it's right. And it's not blame against him. It's okay to just be sad and actually lament the loss of something mm -hmm. uh, and teach our people that because that was something I had never done well previously and I'm learning to do better now. That's good. Yeah, yeah, two super quick ones, just in a sentence or two, picking up on what Stephen said. I think a practical thing it did uh, was it gave the North American church a glimpse at what the church in the rest of the world lives like all the time, yeah. every generation, and kind of got us out of our little bubble of of Christian, you know, blessing where we just have a lot of freedoms here and we can learn a lot from the persecuted church around the world. And uh, yeah, so that was one thing. And then another thing I think too really practically was um, it forced parents to take a more active role in the discipleship of their kids because mm -hmm. their kids were with them. Yeah. 
they weren't just going to go to Sunday school and youth group twice a week or three times a week. And so parents, you know, and then we had to, our ministry shifted more towards equipping people to do ministry instead of providing the ministry. And so I think practically as a church in North America, we saw what the global church sees every day and we can learn from that. And then secondarily, a practical thing is uh, our parents at least had to step up in terms of their role in discipleship. You can't hand that off to the church and say they're going to learn at Sunday school. You got to do that at home. So that's good. Yeah, those are, I mean, to add one that's far less profound, but you guys have said most of the profound stuff. One very practical way that I think will turn out to be a game changer is it really forced the church to figure out how to get the gospel online, uh, how to get their content online. In the first uh, lockdown, we noticed uh, that we had a huge number of screens uh, tuning in every service and uh, significantly more screens than than we actually had people in our church. And and of course, behind each of those screens, there would typically be a family, right? Like a mom and a dad and a couple of kids. So we were like, who are all these people? And we we got emails from a number of other churches saying, hey, just so you know, uh, we, we couldn't figure out how to broadcast. We don't have the technology. So we've just directed our people uh, to track with you. But we're going to be working at trying to figure out this technology in case there's another lockdown. Because remember, at first, we sort of thought this will just be short term, but churches took it as a spur to develop technology. Well, when the second lockdown hit 10 months later, uh, December 26, 2020, uh, we only we were down by about 25% in terms of the number of weekly average uh, screens tuning in and far fewer churches were emailing us saying they've they've sent their people to us meaning uh a huge number of churches had figured out technology by the end it was basically our our people and our you know catchment base and sort of uh tracking with us but but every church churches of 10 people uh had bought a a camera and started a youtube channel and there's no way that doesn't prove out to be strategic in the years and decades ahead. Like the, the church went online. I remember, I think it was the first or second Sunday we were all online. So this would be late March, 2020. We crashed BoxCast. I don't know if you guys remember that. Uh, like they had they had never seen volume like that. So I, I think there's, we may look back on that and say, you know what, just before the public square started getting tight, uh, the church figured out technology and that that may not be the worst thing in the world. Now, shifting gears a little bit, um, I, I mentioned that everybody seems to be talking about how the world out there is changing. Uh, I've been reading a number of forecasters, uh, Christian and otherwise. Uh, George Friedman uses that expression, the storm before the calm. Uh, Mark Sayers talking about the gray zone. There's a bit of a transition. Peter Zahan actually, before the pandemic, was saying 2019 was already the last good year, uh, it, meaning that a lot of a lot of trends were already ripening before the pressure of COVID. And then uh, Ross Duthat had that great article that came out called "Waking Up in 2030," where he basically argued that the pandemic, because of the pressures of the pandemic, was an accelerator of social change. And so under the pressure of two or three years of pandemic conditions, the culture had actually advanced about a decade. And uh, lots of things have changed. You know, we could we could list some of those things in the thinking geopolitically. The United States has basically transitioned from advancing their values to protecting their supply line. Uh, that's a far more modest approach, and it's going to lead to a much more unstable world. We're going to see regional conflicts like we see in Ukraine. There is, of course, a demographic crisis out there as the baby boomers retire. And that is not just an out there problem. That's an in here problem in the church. The median age of a pastor in North America right now is 58. 
Uh, and there are nowhere near enough Gen Xers to replace all those retiring boomers. And then below them, millennials did not go into ministry at anywhere the same rate as the two previous generations. We are facing a crisis uh, in the pulpit in, in the next 10 years. Uh, so that's a, an issue out there. And then uh, Friedman makes an interesting observation. He says, in the last 10 years, government has become so big and so comprehensive and so competent that we've reached the point now where when something bad happens, we no longer assume incompetence, we assume conspiracy. We assume that they meant for this to fail. And so there is gov there is dissatisfaction and distrust with the government and with all institutions at a level we've never seen before. And it's not just the government. Uh, our friend Wyatt was sharing uh, around last week a statistic that he uncovered that millennials now uh, are the least trusting generation in history with respect to the medical profession, right? They, they get their medical advice from YouTube. Uh, I, I'm not sure how that ends well, but there are all kinds of shifts out there. And then I wonder if we're also seeing a shift. There is, for the first time that I can remember in the last decade, a bit of pushback on the LGBTQ agenda. Uh, we've seen figures like Richard Dawkins last week come out in support of J.K. Rowling. Uh, we have seen NHL teams backing out of Pride Night celebrations. And so is the tide turning out there on the LBGTQ agenda? These are, these are trends that have accelerated very quickly over the last couple of years. So the world out there is different. And I guess the answer or the question I'm asking is, how does that affect the church? How will ministry in the next 10 years be different because of the new world that we're living in? I would just love to hear from you again in your in your various contexts. Chris, you were just in a meeting talking about this, so I figure your insights might be fairly fresh. Uh, why don't you start, but also talk a little louder. Talk right into your microphone so that we can hear all of what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's the right question to be asking. The the language we used came, we borrowed this from an article Andy Crouch wrote called yep. Winter Blizzard Ice Age. Hmm. Uh, just that, you know, this wasn't going to be a blip. This was a game changer that we're going to wake up in an ice age and still have to figure out how to live. How are we going to grow food? How are we going to survive as a people in this new new reality? And so I think, I do think that if the church is not thinking in those terms, like, like this is significant, like the stuff that you just described, and there's probably other statistics and realities we could cite, like there is a, a tsunami that is coming for the Canadian church that, that I think we are, you know, we're, we're talking about what color we should paint the walls. And uh, I, th I think, you know, Jesus is Lord over his church. So I'm, I'm not scared, but I just think we should be a little bit more prepared uh, for some of these things. So if I had to, I just wrote, jotted down a couple of things. The yeah. first one is I think we're going to see a, a significant rise of bivocational or co-vocationalism, like ministry is just too expensive. Uh, churches are on the whole shrinking, not growing. Um, and they just don't have the resources to fund full-time vocational ministry uh, and ministers. And so I just think you're going to see a rise of church planting. That's going to be more um, sort of indigenous and, and bivocational. Uh, I, at least in my context, I don't know what everyone else's context, but uh, the category of de-churched is gone. Like it's an eliminated category. So the bread and butter of church planting over the last number of years has been the de-churched category. Like we planted 12 years ago and that was primarily how we grew. It was people that used to go to church. Yeah. Those people don't exist anymore. The largest uh, religious category in British Columbia, at least, is none. And so um, 
I think that's like that's pretty significant when the vast majority of the growth that we see in our churches is like disproportionately transfer growth. So we can have the illusion that the church is growing because our church is growing, but we know that this is not the case. We know that it is in steep decline across Canada. And so we may make the best burgers in our city. And uh, so people are coming to eat them, but are we actually um, furthering the mission of Jesus uh, to saturate, you know, Canada with the gospel? I'm not sure. It seems like the, the, the statistics would tell us that that is not the case. And then I think the third big implication, and I've got lots that I'd love to say about this, but I'll just throw the implication out, is I think churches are going to have to be forced to rethink what discipleship is. Like, what does it look like to be a disciple and and to make a disciple? And I think at the core, there's going to have to be a shift, not at the essence of what the church is, but sort of like the perspective we take on it. And I think the future church that will survive in the Ice Age will, will see itself more like a mission sending agency and less like a pen to gather sheep in. And I think many of our ministries are, um, well, they're perfectly designed to get the results they're currently getting. Let's just put it at that. And we're not necessarily seeing a net gain when we look at how the church is doing in terms of disciple making in Canada. In fact, it's it's a pretty significant negative. So I, I just think these are conversations that we need to seriously be engaged in. That's good. Anyone else want to chime in on that? Yeah, I think one of the areas we can really grow in is in terms of fellowship and community. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were a number of families that splintered. I'm not talking Christian families, just neighbors, friends of mine, people I knew that weren't Christian who who just like the church did, you know, they were all of a sudden torn apart over COVID protocols and their support yeah. systems fell apart and people that they could trust couldn't. And to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings a oneness and a family um, is something I think that we really need to focus on and yeah. to show people that, that, I mean, you get, you get God, which is amazing. Uh, we had a young man uh, from a Buddhist home who came to faith in Christ. And about four weeks after his baptism, uh, he said to me, I knew I got God when I was saved. And when God saved me, I knew I got him. I didn't understand. I got a whole new family. Yeah. I didn't understand that I had this whole new thing that I never had before. And he said, you guys have become closer to me than my very family. I mean, dad's not in the picture, blah, blah, blah. But but all that said, I think that's something that we really need to understand, just have a better theology of what's it mean that we are the bride of Christ, the church, we are the body, um, and have a better better comprehension of that. That's good. Yeah. Paul, a couple of things uh, where we're at, uh, this would be probably true nationally, but I'm seeing it right here in our province, uh, and that is... Uh, the impact of some of the laws that have changes, changed, uh, Bill C-4 and C-6 being predominant among them. So looking at conversion therapy, the definition of conversion therapy, and then uh, medical assistance in dying or made. Um, yeah. I think both of those things are going to put pressure and are putting pressure right now on, on the church in ways that, at least in, in my generation, we've not known. We've not had the laws against us. Um, recently here in Quebec, it was a, a media outlet that uh, went about uh, with one of the reporters basically misrepresenting themselves, going to a number of different churches, trying to get uh, the clergy there to incriminate themselves uh, against the law there. And um, and then they and then they published this this report. They published their their article online and it went all over the place. 
Um, so I think that's going to be a, a really big thing. And so how we think about actually making the gospel known won't be so much from, from the church as a, as maybe a, an institutional entity, but individual Christians are going to have to stand up and, and be doing that. So not as much like, Hey, would you like to come to church with me? But Hey, how can, how can I share Christ with you? And so I think those pressures that are going to go on the sort of the organization or the institutional church are going to possibly in, in good ways, kind of like fracture the gospel out and see it go out in different ways. Yeah, that's good. I do want to add though, guys, I think this is going to make where we have to be practitioners and, and have humility because even as I listen to Quebec and BC, I would say I'm living a completely different cultural narrative. Um, the the complete lack of the gospel here for years in regards to real gospel, followed by five centuries of institutional religion. But actually, for me, coming on the other side of this, the breakdown of cultures, like it's been given a God-given opportunity to show real gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're we're finding, even amongst Gen Z and millennials, just an incredible opportunity to uh, reach, you know, people that we've we've never reached before. I mean, the demographic of our church, the average age of our church is 28 years old, um, and and it's just because people are realizing. I think what you talked about, Paul, the pushback of the call, the culture is now parrying itself. Like we we don't even need to have those Christian voices that call for some sort of moral majority. There's Joe Rogan and Bill Maher and Joe uh, Jordan Peterson. These guys are doing that fight, J. J. Cree Rollins, it it just goes on and on and on. I think we have a golden opportunity to display life, peace, joy, um, the freedom to confess, the the ability to say we're broken and need help, we're confused, and display patience of the gospel. What I would say for leadership is, again, I see these trends in COVID or no COVID. I think through the 80s and 90s, we called everybody to the ministry. And then through the second half of the 90s and through the 2000s, we called nobody to ministry. Now I think we have to be brave enough to call people to ministry and understand that call to ministry is going to look radically different. It doesn't mean I'm calling you, you go out and you go to four years of Bible college and then three years of seminary. It's it's going to be very, very, the decentralization I think of higher Christian education is going to be one of the big marks of what happens over the next 10 to 15 years as we see bivocational or vocational. I wonder if we're going to see a new age in the Western church of Bishop, the office of Bishop. Yeah. Um, Steve, I've been thinking the same thing, like meaning I, I I both agree and disagree with what Chris said. I mean, and I mean, I I believe I want you to hear that the right way. Like I agree with you that a lot of our hires uh, in the next decade are going to be bivocational or, or at least part-time like meaning, uh, I think a lot of our hires are going to be semi-retirees uh, who who are willing to work, you know, 15, 20 hours a week. Uh, and they'll they'll take over roles that used to be done by full-time associate pastors. But I think what you're going to see is we, we probably won't call them bishops. We almost certainly will not. But basically, pastors of larger churches who are commissioned to spend a great deal of their time uh, developing uh, leaders and even overseeing pastors of other churches— um, like we've we've had churches ask us to foster them, adopt them. Um, they they need help, uh, and I think it's 
I think that's a new reality, seeing churches the, and, and pastors who are committed to leadership development because you you just can't trust the pipeline anymore. Like it used to just be you put your bucket under the spigot and turn the spigot on and, and an associate pastor fell out. Well, th that is not the reality. And I don't think that's going to be the reality again for at least a decade. There's There's been uh, quite a lot of, um, maybe, I don't know if resurgence is the right word, but um, a lot of work being done in like sort of the... I know this, is, this is a bit of a buzz term, but like the apostolic ministry, like a, like an apostle who kind of goes around and helps churches that he's been invited into or, she, you know, has been planted himself and, and then moved on. But like this ongoing kind of tending to these churches and, and you know, you see this through um, uh, Terry Virgo's ministry in the UK. Uh, where, where this is a, this is an office that they have. And uh, these are smaller churches, 40 to 60 people. And uh, they have these sort of traveling, I, not itinerant preachers so much, but like itinerant leaders who are invited in, lay, lay an apostolic foundation for the church and help install leaders, leave, come back, similar to what we would see kind of in, in the New Testament church. So there is that layer of ministry is starting to emerge because like I got a letter in the mail from, from the college I went to saying like, Hey, if you have somebody in your church, who's like 19 owns a Bible and can spell Jesus, it would be great <laughs> if you could send them our way. Um, Cause they're, yeah, they're, they're not yeah. getting students. Yeah. Sounds like the brethren movement all over again. <laughs> well, it is interesting. I think we will have to relearn some old models. You know, I, I was in the mountains of Arissa uh, a number of years ago. And it, and it was interesting. It was like stepping back in time. Uh, we went uh, with, I was traveling with this other fellow and we went to this church, this village where we were preaching. And um, they did this ritual where you sit in a chair and they wash your feet and they sing how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And, and at first I thought this is inappropriate. Like, are you just doing this for us? Cause, cause we're, you know, Westerners. And they're like, Oh no, no, this is our, this is our Sunday morning routine. So there, there were apparently in that region, there were like four pastors um, serving like 16 churches. And so they walked from church to church to church on a Sunday morning. And, and so they were walking on goat trails. So every time they arrived at the church, they get their, you know, they, they do this as part of the ritual. That's interesting. You know, four pastors serving 16 churches. Uh, they've been doing that for hundreds of years there in, in India. I mean, we, we may just have to relearn some old models. All right. I want to just for sake. Oh yeah, Paul, jump in and then we'll get to our last conversation. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, just to touch on, you were talking there about how rapidly things are changing and how there's been 10 years of change in like three years or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I think the other big effort in front of us too, which never ends, is the contextualization of the gospel. And it seems like, like if you go back 20, 30 years, it seemed like evangelism explosion or alpha, you could kind of take a generation and reach them with the gospel kind of one way for the most part. Yes. Whereas now, I don't know where millennials and Gen X and Gen Z all overlap on top of each other. And yeah. we're dealing with like four generations at once. And within those generations, we've talked about how it's all balkanized because you got the LGBTQ tribes, you got the conservative tribe, the liberal, tri like there's all these different tribes within them. And so a lot what's been on my heart is as a church is like, what is the gospel to this generation, this tribe within this generation? Yeah. You know, what is the gospel to the LGBTQ person who's struggling? What is the gospel to a kid who's bullied at school? What is the, what is the gospel to the, you know, the whatever single mom? And we need to contextualize the gospel. It's the same gospel. It reaches everybody with hope, 
um, and it reaches them where they are. But if I almost feel I'm just talking from personal experience here, it feels like I'm a missionary who's working in 12 different countries and needs to speak eight languages, you know, because because how I present the gospel to all these different generations and all these different tribes um, seems like it needs a lot of work now more than ever. Like there's not just one gospel story that you go door to door and tell everybody and they all hear it the same way. Um, and I find that that to be something that we need to keep doing. But one of the things I'll just finish on is that COVID, one of the things that I think COVID also did for us, maybe because we're in such a fractured state right now, is everybody on the planet has the same touch point of experience of COVID, yeah. which is the reminder that death is near at hand and it's always been contagious and there's only one solution for it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so kind of like 9-11, kind of like other big things like that, as, as much as there's all this diversity in generations and tribes and political opinions and social opinions, everybody went through COVID and everybody had the same sort of visceral experience. And maybe COVID has given us that reminder to everybody, um, yeah, that, that there is another thing to be thinking about other than just what's going on on CNN tonight. That's good. Uh, just sake of time, I want to transition to our last conversation uh, and on a positive note, uh, COVID changed the world, COVID reshifted, uh, repositioned us in relation to the culture. What are some new opportunities? What are some things uh, that you're excited about over the next 10 years and and opportunities for the church to seize, uh, gaps for the church to fill? Uh, what are you seeing out there in this reorganized world? I think it's really exciting because we get to rethink church. And I think we, now I'll just speak personally, we got pretty good at traditional church. We're a good church. Mm -hmm. We're growing. The budget's good. Everything. We're, we're so successful. And successful at what? I think now we have to ask the question. And if it is truly to make disciples, if that's the, the this ever-increasing passion to influence the world and bring them into God's kingdom, I think it's an opportunity for us to rethink what we're doing and what we're doing well and to get a new scorecard. And I, I think... On the old scorecard, we were doing really well. And when we hiccuped with COVID, we discovered that it probably wasn't the right scorecard. And I'm excited because it gives us an opportunity to rethink, what are we trying to do? Why are we trying to do it? Whose strength are we doing it in? And what accomplishes that? And, and to, to be humble and to be creative. I also think it gives us an opportunity to redefine Christianity. Christianity is not, from my opinion, not defined very well right now. You got the religious right or the uh, liberal left. And and I would love to see us define it relationally where the holiness and love mark who we are and overflow. And I think if we can do that at the center, meaning the center of Christ and Christianity, I think it's an opportunity for us to have a voice that's loud and impactful, that's not so traditional perhaps, and not so contextual even perhaps, but is actually in alignment with Jesus and who he is and what he did. That's good. Good. Chris, you look like you were jumping in. Uh, I just wanted to say amen, but I was muted. But you can was, do that. That's some good <laughs> preaching, Rob. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, to just piggyback off what Rob said, I think a new scorecard is in order. Um, I think we, we need to sort of reevaluate uh, what we're measuring. Like I said in my last comments, we're perfectly designed to get the results we're currently getting. Uh, and so I think if, if the mission is not to fill buildings, but to fill our cities with followers of Jesus so that every single person in our community can have an encounter with Jesus through his church, then we probably need to imagine, reimagine what it would look like to be that kind of people. I think the gospel compels us to be that kind of people. I think God's story is telling that narrative, right? Like that is God's story, that he wants to fill the earth 
with the knowledge of his glory. And so I think we need to reimagine as church leaders, what does it mean to equip our people to make disciples who make disciples? In some ways, what, what I think we need to get back to is like the simplest invitation that Jesus has given us, which is invite people to come and follow me and like, let's do this together. And so I, I'm, I'm encouraged because I think, yeah. uh, I think COVID's giving us the opportunity to have those conversations where maybe we didn't have that opportunity before. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Mark said, yeah, I was just going to say, sorry, Mark Sayers, who, who I've re referenced a couple of times, he, he wrote an interesting book recently called A Non-Anxious Presence. And uh, I think that's a bit of a model for us moving forward, just in terms of as the culture disintegrates uh, and, and as there is more anxiety out in the culture and as the foundation crumbles, uh, for a, I think all of a sudden a church that says, hey, you know, come on over here. We've been believing the same thing now for 2000 years or for 3,500 years. Come on over here and let's have a talk. I think all of a sudden that's going to be very attractive. And, and as the culture increasingly experiences loneliness and isolation, I mean, my goodness, we've got multiple countries now that have appointed a minister of loneliness um, for us to be able to say, well, come on over here. We, we got a multi-generational gathering here uh, with grandmas and grandpas, aunties and uncles, uh, kids and cousins. Come on over. We'd love to, we'd love to connect with you. I think, to be honest, I, I sort of describe myself as a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist, meaning I think we got a year or two to reorganize, as, as both you brothers have been saying. But then, my goodness, after that, I am expecting onwards and upwards. It may be, it may be harder and it may be more underground, but uh, I think the harvest or, or the fields are wide under harvest in terms of what we have to offer. Stephen, you were going to jump in. Yeah, piggyback on that one thing that you know Paul made the mention. I do think we can actually say, probably maybe in the history of the church, as Paul, but we we now are in churches in life with more generations alive overlapping with each other than yeah. probably all of human history. So that is a wonderful opportunity and a unique privilege. And and I would say as we look, not only this with this rethinking, guys. I, one thing I will say, I'm passionate about. Let us not undersell these millennials and Gen Zs. I think the opportunity we have coming out of COVID is to challenge the baby boomers, and and even the Gen Xers to say, okay, are you prepared now? And I think they more are than ever before to invest in and let go of the reins to those two younger generations. And I also think we have to step back and look at, you know, in the denomination I'm in, which is piggyback to the SBC, people don't realize in the SBC over in the United States, right, 45,000 so churches, we only focus on about a thousand mega churches. It's made up of about 40 plus thousand, what I call mom and pop churches. And, and the rediscovering of the honor of pastoring 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people and preparing men and women how to minister in that and to, to relish it and create community and infiltrate neighborhoods, I think is a now new golden opportunity. Paul, you and I, over four or five years ago, when you came here and we were launching my one mission, we yeah. used these two words, networked and nimble. Yeah, and that. I wonder if the future of the Canadian or North American church is going to be embracing that we're going to be networked and nimble as people, and we're not going to celebrate mega churches. We'll appreciate them if God yeah. allows them to continue, but we won't celebrate them and think that's the model we want to replicate. The replication will be a biblical model of disciples making disciples. And if God chooses to have larger centers, mm -hmm. 
but largely the church is going to be, I think, networked and nimble, and we need to celebrate yeah. it. And I think this gives us the opportunity to do it. Yeah, I do wonder if if one of the things we'll say 10, 20, 30 years from now is that COVID killed the megachurch in North America. Um, yeah, I do wonder. It, it just may not be the right model for what comes next. Did anybody want to jump in before we uh, close it down and wish folks well? All right. Well, we, as I mentioned, we are going to try and do this once a month, uh, God willing and time permitting and and uh, topics remaining, as I'm sure there will be. Uh, and uh, we'd love to see you then. I want to thank each of you for joining me today. And uh, we'll hope to see you again back in April for another episode of the Canadian Pastors Forum. Until then, take care and God bless you all.